You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season hosts Lisa Greenwood, co-host Tim Sorens, and special guests explore spiritual formation. What is formation and what is the church's role in formation? Join our email, contact us, and find more resources from leadership ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi friends, I'm Lisa Greenwood, and I'm back with my co-host for this season, Tim Sorens. Hey, Tim. Hi, Lisa. Our theme for this season is formation. So we're talking about what is formation and what is the church's role in formation and how is it changing. And we're learning so much through these conversations, and we hope you are too. Now is a good time to say that we love hearing from you. If you're not signed up for our email, you can find a link in our show notes. Um, And when you get those emails, you can reply directly to me. Um, Let me know what's rising to the top for you in these conversations. One of the most important pieces of this that we'll explore today with our guest is about the role of institutions in forming people. And I'm wondering, Tim, what your take is on how institutions form us. It's such an interesting question, isn't it? How do institutions form us? I think it requires probably a bit more thought, and I'm glad that we have Anne as our guide in just a little bit. But I guess I would say that my bias, because it's always more fun, is to be thinking about movements and momentum and revolutions. But the truth (laughs) is that both underneath any kind of movement and arguably kind of like on top of it is the gift of an institutional frame. And I'm more convinced than ever that if we do not sustain healthy institutions that are really clear about what they are for, that the movements that we long to be a part of, to see, are just not going to be possible. So I think that, in a sense, at their best, institutions help cultivate movement and momentum towards what, for our purposes, what God is doing. I think that's true with all institutions based on their telos, but... I think they're really important. I think that we need to talk about them more. And frankly, with more more of a gift, or you could say even like an asset-based approach to institutions, they get a lot of flack for good reasons. But I think we have to be honest with how important they are. So in our last season, we talked a lot about this. Um, We talked about institutions uh, as separate, really, from the structures that hold the institutions, but that the institutions themselves are the carriers of core truths and values and practices, right? And so the what, what you're talking about, I think, are those institutions that create the framework, right, for the common good, for the formation of, of people and societies. And, and so we do need institutions. And the church not the structure of the church, not the denominational structure or that sort of thing, but the institution of the church and local churches. I mean, they're, they hold those core truths and values and practices, and they offer us opportunities to be formed and shaped. And when those institutions are silent, they have abdicated their role, their very important role, right now. And so I um, I so appreciated this conversation with Anne today, and, and we touch on this in, in our conversation with her. So I'm looking forward to you all getting to hear her. But before we jump into that, Tim, will you give us her bio? Yeah, I'd love to. Anne Snyder is the editor-in-chief of Comet Magazine and oversees Comet's partner project, Breaking Ground. She's the host of a really incredible podcast I love called The Whole Person Revolution, and also co-editor of a book called Breaking Ground, Charting Our Future in a Pandemic Year. That came out in January of 2022. Before leading comment, she directed the Philanthropy Roundtable Character Initiative. It was a program seeking to help foundations and business leaders strengthen the, quote, middle ring of morally formative institutions. You can see how we get into that in a second. Her path-breaking guidebook, The Fabric of Character, A Wise Giver's Guide to Renewing Our Social and Moral Landscape, was published in 2019. And she has published widely, including The Atlantic Monthly, The Washington Post, Bittersweet Monthly, and of course, Comment. 
So Tim, um, when we were dreaming about who could be part of this season, you very quickly mentioned Anne um, as being the top of your list. So will you say a word about why you've been inspired by her and why she's such a great conversation partner for this topic? I got to know Anne about a year ago, and very quickly I understood why she's such a gifted leader, editor, writer, because how she pays attention to the world around her, to other books, to other people, I think is actually quite particular. I think that she has a, mm. a unique eye and lens for seeing the kind of undercover hero in a lot of places. She has been formed, as she's going to talk about, with a, a very like global imagination. And ultimately, I find her to be both in person, in her writing, and certainly in conversation, an incredible host. Uh, she just mm -hmm. exudes hospitality and welcome. And I just love being around her. I think that she's one of the more important leaders of our day. And so I was thrilled that she agreed to be on this podcast. Me too, me too. So let's listen to our conversation with Anne. Anne, thank you for being with us. We are so excited to have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here. Great. We want to jump right in with getting to know you a little bit. And because this season is about formation, um, we, we kind of want to use a formation frame and wonder if you could share a few things that stand out for you in your life that have sh shaped you into the person you are today. Sure. I... Um it's funny, believe it or not, I actually haven't gotten this question much, which is ironic because I wrote a book on the backs of asking this question to like hundreds of people a number of years ago. And I was telling someone this recently at like a wedding reception, a, mil a former military uh, person who had served in the military. And he was interested in questions of formation because he had um, been part of such a thickly formative institution that was vast, I think unusually vast for our age. And he was like, let me turn that on you, Anne. How have you been formed? And I found myself um, like a little bit looking for words some, for some reason. So usually with the, we don't turn the mirrors to ourselves. So I got a little practice. Right. So I will, I will say this. A few key things I'll just mention. The first is I was really lucky. I grew up overseas as a kid. I was born in the US in the Boston area, but shortly thereafter, lived in Hong Kong and then Australia until uh, my early teen years. That was its own exposure, I think, to sort of what I call like Eastern cosmopolitanism. Uh, my father was in finance, and so we were kind of in those diplomatic circles. But my mother had grown up the daughter of linguists and more specifically Bible translators in the Amazon jungle. So our apartment was like completely defined by indigenous artwork and Quechua flutes and hearing stories about growing up barefoot and a little bit of not scarcity. I don't think they knew that they didn't have a lot as children. But so I kind of felt like just in the imagination that was around me, it was very global, it was very cross-cultural, relationally it was quite Asian. And that would follow me even moving to Australia and then kind of throughout the, my life, different different seasons of deep embeddedness for me in Korean worlds to then Vietnamese Jesuit worlds to Hong Kong Chinese and sort of that capitalist mindset and all that. So I, I'm i grateful for that, but then the sort of animating heart of the home was very Latin. And uh, even though I sound super American and look like this, and I am this, you know, I guess European heritage, that, something about that kind of cross-cultural ambiance from a very young age was pivotal. And then a few other things, I think having a again, through my mother's line, um, a grandfather in particular who himself had fairly unusual for his generations starting in the 40s, really bridged worlds across the equator, across sort of high and low, mm -hmm. the heads of state in Latin America to indigenous tribal leaders who bridged it linguistically between Spanish and an indigenous dialect, and then ultimately was part of some ecumenical renewal unity work between Catholics and Protestants in Latin America in the 60s and 70s. I think there's something about his witness to me that I didn't really become a Christian until high school in a very secular environment back in the U.S., but there was something about watching this faith play out in a way that was extremely incarnate, actually very non-Western in many ways, that stuck with me. And fast forward, I think a key enunciation moment happened in college. I had this chance to help 
I mean, we didn't really help. We basically a bunch of American college students helped raise money for a year to then go down. It was one of these classic, I think, I'm not sure they do these anymore, but, you know, a couple of weeks of walking alongside a rural village to help them dig some ditches for a water system. Uh, that was a very real need. They obviously did most of the work. We just provided some of those like American um, greenbacks, <laughs> dollar bills. And um, that experience, I think I found myself one of the only people in our American team who could speak the language. So I kind of unintentionally became this translator and felt kind of almost like I had my a little bit of my grandfather's gifting passed on to me in ways that both crossed cultures and language and life experiences that almost felt beyond myself. Like I would just go to bed exhausted at the end of the every day so full of like emptying oneself in to try to make sure everyone was understanding one another and that we weren't making too harsh of moral judgments just because this is a completely different socioeconomic strata and set of inheritances. But also I think just really coming face to face with people who really suffered on a day-to-day basis, um, whether you were women who didn't know if you would survive childbirth or growing up with not enough food your whole life, it just sort of that confrontation with poverty for me at age 19 and watching, it was I right around that time someone suggested to me actually a Honduran said, have you, who, who had some American contact said, you know, have you ever read Henry Nowen's Compassion? Uh, you need to read that right now. And it was, so I read it and it's basically a book that completely altered the shape of my faith and my understanding of sort of the intersections between what it is to be a bridge builder, but ultimately how love to be, to have integrity has to suffer with. And I think something about those key pillars in my life, I'm not in love with suffering, but I'm drawn to anyone who's willing to put aside their own rights and kind of endure slights or being overlooked or real pain. And there's something about watching people allow that to be a gem tumbler in service of love of neighbor and love of the other that I think continues to animate me to this day, though I've found myself in more sort of intellectual vocational waters, not digging ditches to build a water system. So, and then, and then the final thing I'll say was, um, and we could, we might get into this a little bit later. I had an experience right around when I turned 30 years old where there was just a lot of loss all of a sudden and sort of a tragic misunderstanding led to this traumatic kind of loss of family, loss of vocation for a while, loss of geography and a home. And I was very displaced in every way. And I was picked up by a set of sort of substitutional institutions. And they were uniquely kind of lined with a familial logic. These were not like banks or even coffee shops. They there was like a they were less transactional. They really had a sense of we know what we are for, that therefore um, necessitates certain rituals. Those mm. rituals help us give us a sense of particularity and shared ownership. And and I just sort of was found myself adopted. It was in Texas actually by um, not just one institution that had some philanthropy involved, a retreat center, youth camps, there was that world, but also a variety of immigrant communities deeply forged in that that case by the Catholic Church. And I think I just suddenly, because I had my own roots stripped away for a period of time, I suddenly realized how much I had taken for granted, how institutions really do shape us. And I became very interested in kind of that invisible, powerful part of life that we, in an American context, we often think you know, is unsexy or should be eradicated or blown up. Um, But actually, like maybe our institutions don't need to stay the same. But if we can understand the gift that they are to us, maybe that's the place to begin. And if we can name some of the deeper principles at work in a healthy organization that save people and provide a bridge in times of displacement and loss, maybe that's where we need to begin in the century of so much institutional distrust. First of all, Thank you for the gift of of that thread that has gone through your life. And one of the things that we've been talking about is how we are always being formed, all of us, all the time. And those of us who are deeply committed to the work of the church really believe that the church has a role that and and not necessarily the organizational structure of the church, but the institution of religion has a role to play in forming us, in forming human beings and helping us to to work for the common good. And, And one of the things we've seen in you is that you believe in institutions, you believe in their value. And so I would love for you to say more about 
what role you believe institutions have in forming us, in formation. And if we could even connect that dot to spiritual formation, I'd love that too. But the role of institutions today. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think so many sectors that have been anchored in large institutions, possibly the military as an exception, in the U.S. at least, are obviously going through so much combustion right now. And there's many legitimate reasons for that combustion. And there are reasons why people have lost faith and no longer allow themselves to endow, whether it's, you know, the Catholic Church with moral authority or the New York Times with moral authority or uh, the city police department with moral authority, et cetera, at the big banks. You know, there's we can all point to the historical plot lines that led to this moment of kind of reckoning and shake up higher ed and and it's sort of complete surrender to meritocratic norms at the expense of whole per, you know what it means to be a whole person and and formed as a whole person not just a brain on a stick all that but i think i still so i see all of that and i sometimes interrogate it in my own writing and i'm sympathetic i am right on the line between millennial and gen xers so i i am enough of a product of my own generation to to be skeptical of institutions, but sure. I believe in them because, and I I think there's something like both very exhausting and also actually fundamentally dishonest about consciously both thinking and behaving as though we are our own islands and that we have come to every conviction on our own and that we have not inherited anything. And I think the older I get, the more I find myself, and this may be actually a little bit of a feminine thing too. I don't know if this comes a little bit more naturally to women, but the older I get, I just find myself using words that are in the, that are like gift, receiving, wombing, what it is to steward. Like I just find myself naturally gravitating towards these verbs that have me as a player in a long line that comes before me and that goes after me. And I do think institutionalists see themselves as debtors who owe something, not creditors to whom something is owed. And I just find something about that very beautiful and actually even helpful. Like we're in this national moment of reckoning over a number of things in our history, but most obviously kind of you know, what you might call the original sin of sort of racial hierarchy of human value. And yeah. I think it it's helpful actually, on the one hand, we want some dose of individualism to yield what did what was the initial civil rights movement in the 60s or the feminist movement. I mean, some of the good things that occurred to allow, you know, individualism has its way of, I think, honoring human dignity and agency. But there's something about recognizing that, we are in some long, mysterious stream. And that doesn't mean we are like a cog in the wheel, that we have no purpose and it's all just, you know, we're part of this anonymous sea. But that somehow understanding that institutions are the bridge for us between individual self-actualization and contribution and a sense of understanding your role, you know, your role with something larger. And it's just, it's, I think that part of another thing, and this is not all original to me, there's a wonderful book that sort of gets overlooked sometimes by a man, I think he was at Georgetown called Hugh Hecklow, I don't think he's living anymore, called On Thinking Institutionally. And he talks about how, you know, the rules- We know this work. Thank do you? you. Yeah. Do you? Okay. Yeah. It's like, you know, the rules of an institution or even a profession, traditional professions, law, you know, name them, they're not transactional like traffic regulations. They're, they're part, they somehow get woven into our very identity um, when we practice them. So, you know, you talk, I always find this when I talk to teachers, I don't have the gift of teaching, I wish I did. But when I talk to true teachers, whether they're teaching kindergartners or college students or even graduate students, there's something in their relationship to their craft that is extraordinarily humane. Like they understand the end, in this case, a human end towards which they are laboring. But there's also like, there's something about the pedagogy and what it means to cultivate a community around an idea and what it means to create a safe container for deep disagreement and what it means that, you know, and there's something about all of that that is like, it's almost like the way religions are created. Like there's something deeply anthropologically brilliant about understanding that we are actually not meant to be 
me, myself, and I, like we are somehow we awaken to the deepest truth of things always in dialogue. And I think institutions are the containers that allow us to experience that dialogue, even when it's discordant. Oh, it's beautiful. Yes. I mean, institutions as containers for the forming, right? Through dialogue, through conversation, through this sort of um, ability to, to, disagree and discover and be curious. It's quite countercultural to be a firm believer in institutions right now, particularly with kind of the winsome nature and conviction that you are. Uh, I find it actually quite inspiring. And as you said, if we take a moment and think about the, just kind of the honesty of how we have been formed as we keep asking that question, of course institutions form us. And there's kind of like a fleeing away perhaps of thinking in some ways that they don't, when of course they do. So I just really appreciate that. I used to think about this, say I used to study a little bit, like what's happening to young men. There was sort of this uptick in like unemployed young men, in the, I would say circa, two, I don't know all the date on this now, but I can't remember it, but so, somewhere between like 2006 and 2014, there were these kind of drastic erosions of like men in like full-time work and, I, and women as well, but it tend to, tended to hit men harder for a variety of reasons sociologically. So I thought about it then, but then I, it became so much clearer over COVID as even though many people, you know, did re- people, especially in white collar work, did retain their jobs and were able to continue to get paid and work in the world of ideas and virtual exchange behind a screen. There, you, I think, part, of course, part of like all the mental health challenges we've seen escalate even further is the not being plugged in to something whole that is beyond the self. And you know, I even experience this. Though I'm, though I happen to be actually serving. Uh, comment is published by a wonderful Canadian think tank called Cardis, and it is. And I feel like I am allowed to say this because I study institutions. It's it is. I'm so lucky. It's like the healthiest organization I've ever worked for on a number of metrics, and I'm so grateful to be there. But it is. I am remote. I'm far away, and I don't see them in person very often. And while we have rituals weekly to sort of cover for that, um, and there is a sense of shared project. There is there's tasks and shared. Ta- there's there's all these dynamics that we're somehow able to sustain sustain over phone, Zoom, email. On days where I really need to have deep work, there are times when I'm like, gosh, I feel like such an observer and so alone. And I'm somehow, mm. ev- everything about my sense of purpose, what this is for, it's, it's, it's getting diffuse. It's losing, it's losing itself. And you can easily almost settle into, it is sort of depressing to feel, you, institutions are there, especially if we're a part of them, to remind us of like a great purpose that we have in history. And uh, I, I just think human beings don't do very well when we are taken out of that electrical outlet. <laughs> I totally agree. And uh, you are the host yourself of a podcast, which I love, called The Whole <laughs> Person Revolution. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could tell us uh, from your perspective, why whole person? Like, what do you mm-hmm. mean by that? Mm-hmm. And I'm also curious, if you give kind of a sneak peek, what are some of the topics as you think about what it means to be a whole person, whether that's through comment or specifically for the podcast, what are you wanting to explore right now as you think about what does it mean to be whole? Yeah. This book I got to write a few years ago that wound up being called The Fabric of Character, I wanted almost on sheer, like, I think this would sell better grounds. I wanted to call it The Whole Person Revolution and, you know, for a variety of reasons, it was a more conservative place. I don't know. I don't want to call them stodgy, but they didn't like the word. They didn't like the phrase. So I thought I said, "Oh, I'll I'll save that, and I'll, maybe I'll use it for something later <laughs> on." So I'm glad I've gotten to use it for this podcast. <laughs> Perfect. Um, uh, whole person. Yeah, I broadly define it as having a conception of human beings that is head, heart, and helping hand. That we're not just like I said earlier, brains on sticks, but we're also not just our emotions. You you know, maybe the soul but not everyone believes that we have souls, but for those have a theistic perspective, the soul maybe gets closest to somehow describing this like integrated way in which we live. And what's exciting is it seems like whether it's studies of trauma and things like the body keeping the score, it does seem like we are in this age, we're in an age of so many contradictions, but one of the 
good sides of what also feels contradicted by all the nudges in our culture and of our technology is we does feel like we're in this time of like a humanistic renaissance, including from, you know, very much from the most kind of secular quarters who don't have a transcendent frame of reference, who want to say, no, we don't just like reactions against post-enlightenment, Western, arguably maybe more masculine ways of thinking, um, that that has a place, but we want to say no, but we're also more woven together. And there's like a big shaggy unconsciousness that actually drives most of our decisions. And um, our body sometimes picks up signals that we don't always know how to interpret, but quicker than our brain does. And so, so on the one hand, when I think about the whole person, that's the individual definition. It's also sort of a gesture towards this notion that whole people are um, at their most mature. It's, it's trying to like put maturity and what it means to be mature and to have to constantly be growing towards that on the horizon as an ideal. But what it means to be mature and whole is to be competent at some level. Um, and that you could be disabled, you could have Down syndrome, you could, but to sort of be competent in a, in a gift to a, to a family, to a church, to a neighborhood, to a school classroom, and compassionate. And so I think those two C's, when I think of like the holist people that I know, they somehow, they combine that. There's like some sort of mastery, and it may not be the way Harvard views mastery of a domain, but there's mastery of some like magical thing they offer, and they have this ability to express like deep solidarity, deep listening, patient listening, and the gift of friendship. So it's like it is, there's something about this wholeness in ourselves that is inherently porous and does relate to others, relates to the institutions, et cetera. So yeah, this this podcast, which has been its own evolved thing, I started it during COVID when I was actually, I was running comment, but I did the crazy thing and decided to start something else during COVID because I just felt this like moral compulsion to create a more <laughs> up to the minute space where specifically people of faith, although we welcomed other voices of goodwill and just people honestly seeking to understand what the pandemic and all the events that occurred in 2020 was revealing about our society. I created this thing called Breaking Ground, which was this web platform that was a little bit more kind of up to the news in a way comment is like eight miles deep and looking at deep trends. This was sort of actually following the news cycle a little bit more yet trying to create a capacious deeper space to understand whether it was January 6th or the riots or social distancing or what did ha happen in our nursing homes or whatever. Is this a remaking time? And I, the podcast was initially, and I use that word because I, I was drawn to people who were in some ways, institutionalists who were had kind of a revolutionary bug in them. Like they have that mischievous upstart flavor, but they don't want to burn everything down. They want to reform. And I'm just and and something about their desire to do that, they recognize the wicked complexity of our worst problems. And they kind of recognize that the normal, like scientific reductionistic way of splitting a, a problem into a bunch of sub-problems and then adding them all up somehow wasn't quite gonna work. So I so to give you concrete examples, these just for whatever reason in ways that are often driven more by my intuition than my mind, I somehow find like repeatedly myself put in the path, usually in a journalistic capacity, but they become friends of police officers who are realizing that their training only escalates a mental health crisis and they need to figure out how to become more like social workers and gain some psychological listening skills or at least pastoral abilities to de-escalate so that a suicide doesn't happen, so that a murder doesn't happen, and so that we don't see even... I, I've studied more mental health than race in the police context, but some of the principles apply to what you know, has been on everyone's mind basically since 2014 in Ferguson. Um, so I, you know, I interviewed right off the bat, especially right after George Floyd occurred, um, was killed, a couple of police officers in San Antonio who have wound up becoming these mini little lights, not even so many anymore, in their department and has rippled across to departments all over the country where they have a series of kind of, they call it crisis intervention training. They've literally almost discovered a new vocation while they are still in uniform. They, you know, their weapons are concealed under a t-shirt, but they are really, they're relating in their jobs more like brothers to people in great duress. And I just find that fascinating. How do like very macho men learn how to sort of shift themselves to 
actually be much more solutions oriented and not just continue sort of on a trajectory where we're stuck as a city or as a sort of culture war around policing. So that's one example. I mean, I view them as like growing into becoming more competent and more compassionate to sort of get back to the whole person definition. Another one that was early on in this podcast was interviewing both the founder of and now a former prisoner is part of this rather incredible ex uh, offender community called the Other Side Academy in uh, Salt Lake City, and they're replicating in I think Denver and I think Dallas. Uh, I may be wrong about that, but it's this very uh, rigorous, almost like I don't know, multivariable calculus level moral community that accepts men and women who have spent anywhere between eight to twenty years in jail or prison to into it, and you can stay anywhere from two to four years, and it's all peer to peer, and they have a series of like deep principles that really transform you as a person. So it is like character transformation in a scene, in a home. And I was just interested in this notion, especially during COVID and during this time of social isolation and on the one hand, feeling like we're all in this together, but then vividly in our politics and elsewhere that be <laughs> became evident that wasn't so real, that we were really in it together. Right. Um, and so I was interested in like, at okay, at micro scales, can I flesh out the disciplines and graces involved in a logic that says you are being saved by this very community that you yourself have to save. You save the community that is saving mm -hmm. you. It's always this dialectic. And what does that look like concretely in this case in a in a facility where people have had extremely messy stories and lives and have been publicly punished for their mistakes? So a lot of it, a lot of the people I interview on the podcast and how I think about the whole person revolution, they tend to be stewards of institutions, whether they began in a position of authority or have risen up to that, or or a sphere. It could, it may not be so structured. It may be Miss Rosie on the block in Shreveport, who's sort of the trusted older anti-figure that everyone goes to when gunshots ring out on the street and she's the one making cookies and she's the one gathering them on her front porch. But I'm just interested in these people. And they tend to be comments, actually, core readership, who I think are feeling increasingly beleaguered and alone in an age that is obsessed with binary warfare in our politics and mm -hmm. our religions and our who are somehow bringing much more of an aptitude of, I don't know everything. I know relationships are paramount and keeping relationships healthy are paramount. I also believe in truth telling. And I do believe that not all relationships can just flourish without some moral undergirding. We have to sort of try to understand the suppleness of a shared truth, a horizon of the good. And I want to take some risks and try some things that are often a little bit iconoclastic within my own sector that are going against the norms, but I want to do so in a way that is trying to save this institutional reality to be more in touch with the human needs of our time. So it's it's a little like broad, but I um, I still love the title, <laughs> and I do think I try. You know, if 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 say the people I'm interviewing are not themselves necessarily don't necessarily emanate full wholeness yet in their being, because of course we're all works in progress, the way that they're thinking about their vocation and the sort of communal challenges they're seeking to meet with great honesty, but also persevering hope. There's something about that that I just think is worth sharing and teasing out in the particulars of their situation. I love it, Anne. You are, you're like a, a champion and connector for these revolutionary institutionalists. Which, <laughs> hey, that's a yeah. new phrase. I like that I love term. It. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you said it. You, I mean, well, maybe I'm just putting them together, but revolutionary institutionalists. Thanks. I feel like you, you have a sixth sense for for finding and connecting and championing in them. And Aww. as you said earlier, the, the folks who are obsessed with the binary warfare tend not to be as attracted to you, and vice versa. But the amount of just sheer beauty and good that is already happening, I feel like you've got a special eye to see. And so Thank whether you. they're on podcast or through comment, um, through conversations like this, it's just such a gift in such a exhausted and anxious kind of broader culture, which is also deeply formative yeah. to be reminded of these ordinary heroes. Yeah. So grateful. Yeah, no, thank you. And I, I genuinely feel, I don't say this glibly, but it is just one of those weird, like God kind of helps you out on your vocation. <laughs> and I really feel like I have just 
time and time and time again, it's like little whispers of calling confirmation. Like somehow these are the people I continue to meet. They're often not in the spotlight. Aspen would never invite them to the Ideas Festival, very rarely. Like they're not in that tier of like sparkly, shiny people who get all the glory about, you know, whether it's on altruistic grounds or success grounds or saving the world grounds. But I somehow feel like I get this insight into the wise ones who suffer their way to really serve our world, I would argue serve and keep our democracy alive. And that's really not my doing. I, I don't know why. I just too consistently luck out in crossing paths and I haven't given eyes to see. And I think the main question I ask these days is how, speaking of institutions and how institutions can kind of overdo it, insofar as I steward a little institution, albeit a magazine that is a different kind of institution, how thickly and intentionally from the top or from the center of something like that do you try to coordinate all these people? Do they need to know one another? Should they? Or is that just more homework? Like, how do you think about actually helping equip them and connect them where in a way that's deeply valuable, life-giving, ultimately it lands in friendship for its own sake and not any other end. And I, that's the questions I'm not quite sure how to answer these days, but it's, I think Tim and you and I share that desire and like love of what can happen when people feel united and feel like the, what they're doing is named for them, either through a story or a moral vision. And then they meet others who may be in a totally different sector, but the logic that is animating them is very similar and how they can learn from one another. But I think I'm just not sure these days, well, if there's some new, almost like a new church unfurling here, a new form of the kingdom unfurling, what is the coordinating role need to look like? Because I'm not sure it's like top down, but there does need to be some organizer or multiple organizers. And so this goes back to conversations you and I have had, Tim, but I don't know the answer to that question. And Anne, really, you're speaking into exactly why we're having this conversation, because what we're aware of is that that the church has a really vital role in forming folks, right? Forming yeah. human beings and, and even making a difference in communities. And yet we have narrowly defined that. We've made that what happens on Sunday morning or the weekend worship experience or in Sunday school and that we have narrowly defined how formation happens, whether that's in the weekend worship experience or in Sunday school, and actually we're being formed all the time. And when you when you talk about these leaders and and they are humble servants and they are leaders and they are revolutionary and they are countercultural and beautiful and transformative and they are and you describe this, they are being formed in new ways than maybe how they might have been trained for their professions or their institutions. But now they're realizing, ah, I need to be formed in new ways. And then they're helping form others that then impacts the community and such. And so, so I guess those porous lines between what the church calls its to do mm-hmm. and how human beings are being formed, which actually isn't that the purpose of religion? right, is to form us and shape us to be the human beings that we're called to be and to transform the world. And so, like, liberating that formation, unleashing it, blurring those lines, creating more porous intersections with what it means to be human and to to be a part of the, the emerging and flourishing common good, isn't that what we're talking about really ultimately. (laughs) Yes, I think we are. And I struggle with this. Um, Recently, someone I really respect and who's actually Greg Thompson, who's captaining this welcome table for us, which is a series, so far a written series, but we might do a video. It's sort of interweaving hospitality, the culinary arts, civil rights, and how hospitality can be this sort of surprise when done really well can be this surprise, like not weapon, but it's like, we're, we're always trying to combine, okay, if our age is obsessed with like battles and war, how can these things that are technically the opposite of that not play by the same rules, but actually serve as a more powerful puncture? So anyways, it's yeah. sort of a series about that. And we happened to be planning something the other day and he said, just in passing, he was like, 
you know, a lot of like evangelical elites don't go to church. And um, he said that in passing and I, and I don't actually use the word evangelical anymore. Like a lot of people, not because I've gone through some massive deconstruction that's its own conversation, but for many reasons, it just feels like it's become a very useless word in the American context that describes a political identity more than, more than the adjective I would, I think it's meant to be to describe a spiritual fragrance and set of practices. But I was sort of, I was thinking about that statement more broadly as someone who has probably grown and maybe I've become more Catholic in this way actually, because these, a lot of these people I just named, that was like a a smattering of all the people that I feel like have come to my life as gifts who are in so many different ways, humbly serving as agents of repair in their context, whether that's geographic or institutional. They feel in some ways like my church, except that often, A, there's not shared place. There sometimes is, but I would say more broadly, like all these people are scattered all over the place. So the sense of my own accountability to them outside of conversations and me trying to be helpful to whatever they're doing is lower. And I, I, so there's so many things I could say because I'm thinking a lot these days about like, insofar as I'm trying to create this like hidden or not so hidden irrigation system behind a certain kind of person that tends to be animated by faith, but isn't a thousand, isn't, doesn't have to be out there that are like serving our common good along these, these, these metrics. I'm thinking about that in my local place, which is DC, which is a very quirky local place because it's not only local all the time. And yet, and I, and I don't want it just to be like pastors and churches knowing one another to serve the neighborhood. I want them to be conversing with the police department and the mental health institutions around here and our homeless shelter down the street and the business community and like just that huge yeah. understanding of civil society that we sort of view, at least in a modern context, if we do a graph of it, like, okay, that's like democratic shalom. That looks like we can get on board <laughs> with that. But so I guess I still want to hold out hope. Like I still want to put a plug in for the place of the institutional church, whether that's a local Mm -hmm. church, because I think for all of the ways it's going through its own reckoning these days on a variety of levels, I'll just speak personally, like there's no other place I can go where I feel, I do see the face of God in so many neighbors and these heroes I'm mentioning and, and and also the homeless folks down the street. And I think I've hopefully matured in that way where there is this challenge to my, I see the face. And there, that's hor- that's sort of a horizontal way of accessing in my, you know, accessing the face of Christ, which is a, mis- a real mystery. But there's no other place I can go where I feel like there's a sense of like almost pure. Even though I I know it's a communal act of worship, whereas there is this like pure obeisance, which is this beautiful word that's like a. I think more beautiful than obedience, where I feel like I can truly be sort of humbled and surrender and confess. And there's something about that like ultimate telos and ultimate sacrifice that's like the cyclic and Eucharistic thing that I still believe like needs to happen in this consecrated way in that requires an institution called the church. But Tim is really the expert on like, what is the church for? <laughs> but I agree with you. And I think I'm trying to figure out, okay, how does how do these like light posts that allow for that ultimate constant ritual of renewal and humbling and wrestling to occur in corporate life, because we also have our private ways of doing that, how how does that then punctuate, like what is almost the metronome at which that then interacts with the kingdom as it's living out Monday through Saturday through Sunday mm-hmm. to again and again and again, in a, usually in a place? So <laughs> I don't have answers on this. Walter Brueggemann would, but um, <laughs> I... Yeah, I, I, I'm very much wrestling with this because to be honest, I get a lot, and this is a compliment to our work, although my colleagues who are more theologically proper than I am don't always love when we get this, but comment like here's a lot from people who use it as like a prompt for their dinner conversations or whatever. Yes. They'll be like, this is better than church, Anne. Like this is like amazing. It's so sacred to like actually sit down, read it myself, discuss it with someone else. I feel like I just like got discipled in a way I haven't been discipled by the church in forever. <laughs> And I, you know, I'm sort of like, well, we're not trying to replace anyone here at all. And we're just a little, but but there's something going on here where I think the baggage we bring to certain spaces, the ways in which 
frankly, so much of, I would say, local Sunday church life everywhere. I don't care what denomination or Catholic, that it's just so disappointing. It feels so weak and like weak chicken soup. So mm-hmm. that, so I think there's something about that that is real, and I don't want to overly condemn it, but needs to somehow be maybe in better conversation with people outside the professional religious and what, and there's, and, and maybe there we can, we can find a new fashioning. Yes. So I don't know what I'm talking about, to be honest, but you're hitting me kind of where it hurts. So I'm. Yeah. It hits us where it hurts too. And I mean, it hurts enough that we want to be part of having these conversations, that we want to help the church stand to its full height. We want to challenge the church when it's weak you know, watery chicken soup. We we want to, it hurts enough and we care enough that we want to lean into these hard questions and challenge what it means to be formed and shaped and, and shaped and what the, the church's role in it. So it's so, so thank important. you. Thank you for speaking truth. And oh, well, I don't know if I'm speaking truth, but I, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering like, where are the prophets today? Where are the poets? And I do think like ideally, Ideally, you know, we're in such a secular culture now that it's tricky to even imagine the church explicitly having any authority or even like public legitimacy, even in a country as civilly religious as ours. But I just like, I long, even in my own Sunday experience, I long to be welcomed into an alternative reality through words and bread and hugs and and tears and shared mm-hmm. prayers. Like I long for those moments of being reminded of an alternate place where my own guilt can be served up and healing is offered in a way that's like radical and profound and deeply spiritual. Um, and that needs to happen repeatedly rather than either obviously a political commentary, which is the worst, or I don't know. I don't know. So, so many things. I'm glad I'm not a pastor. I feel bad for people in seminary because they have to deal with all this criticism from people like me, but it, it is hard to solve it. <laughs> well, those longings, I, I pray will be so. I, I do. We are asking all of our guests a final question, and that is, what is one way that you're being formed right now, and what difference is it making for you? Oh, gosh. Um well, to be honest, and I'm not, I'm not happy I'm answering this way, but, uh, and I will answer on a positive note, but I think I, I'm a little worried. There is, there is something right now. It's funny when you're a weaver of people, which I guess I am a little bit, and, you know, I'm probably growing into my leadership legs of toggling between having responsibilities to sort of cast intellectual vision, but also run something. And, and, and there's something, here I am like in the business of celebrating community, trying to understand how healthy communities work. What are the institutions role in fostering flourishing communities? What are the pictures we can paint of that? Okay, that's like where joy is. But it is a solid, in some ways you're still often observing and you're kind of playing this connective tissue role and you're, and it can feel like in our age because of how busy everybody is, that we're, we're, there's just not quite a sense of like shared labor all the time. So I think I feel some these days, like the pace of the pace of trying to serve the needs and this sort of deceit, this this lie that comes to you that where you wake up and you're like, it's up to me to save the world and serve all the needs. I feel the needs so <laughs> so powerfully. It sort of makes everything start to feel like you can just to survive. You get into survival scarcity mode and it makes everything feel like a checklist, even prayer. So I I will be honest. That's a little bit how I feel like I'm being formed right now. That there's this mm. feeling of like it's deep. It's being deformed a little bit. And so mm. I just want to be honest about there are these I think seasons where you're just sort of something's amiss in where your own rooting is such that, you know, I, I don't want everything or and certainly don't want people or my neighbor to feel like a checklist. Uh, but that's like the sort of bearing in logic of our day. And so that's something I, I'll just, I'll acknowledge. This is so recent, but I'm just going to mention it. And it may be so politically incorrect. For the last few years, um, I have been asked here and there to reflect. It's sort of an unusual thing for me to be asked to do, but I have said, yes, I've been asked to reflect on like, what it is to be a woman in public or a little bit in public. I'm not massively public, but a little bit. And and I didn't ever used to think very much about gender. And I think more recently I've, I've said yes to these opportunities because 
in different milieus, whether I've been in pretty conservative, more male milieus or more lefty or name your politics, let alone in the sort of religious life. In a city like DC, which is like pretty ego-driven and policy-oriented and top-down solutions and who's who, all of that, uh, you know, of course, the warfare comp- competitiveness built into our like political muscle structures of imagination, I have sometimes felt like so alienated from the reigning ways of doing business, Mm -hmm. even though I believe in excellence and I believe in good grammar and I believe in deadlines and all that. So, (laughs) but I, so I, I have been like grateful even, and you're really not supposed to talk about gender these days for all the obvious reasons, but I do think there's something about having, having a chance to sort of think about things like the spiritual mothering of social movements and what, not necessarily women, but like the feminine spirit in the world, is there still, in in many ways perhaps, is there, is this a time when that is like particularly welcome and needed, whether you want to equate that with hospitality or a surrendering of ego and a willingness to think more in terms of we and relationship, what it is to create safe space, what it is to nurture, like all the sort of adjectives you might typically associate with the feminine. So I've just had some people very recently introduce me to, this is how this is ending. Um, It's not a practice, but in the context of like living too full of a life lately, a touchstone that has been so illuminating and nourishing for me has been getting familiar with, she's a woman by the name of Alison Armstrong, who I had never heard of. I think she was big in like the 90s and early 2000s, but just has this like, she studied like gender differences um, deeply. And I've been sort of listening to her stuff and it's been resonating about, so this is going to, I feel self-conscious because I'm not typically like a gender person, but I, I think I've just been thinking about what is the place for hospitable leadership today? And is there something in the way that kind of female instincts for gathering and not hunting, like from an evolutionary perspective, has a particular call in our moment? And um and and there's something about that that I'm leaning into because I think the more I study history, where you don't actually often hear a lot about the women who were involved in various movements and involved in kind of redemptive social change, but the more I'm like peering beneath the surface of things, I'm just encouraged and I feel like, okay, that's, so there's just something I'm meditating on. <laughs> I love hearing this. And and honestly, Anne, so here I'm two months into this new role, and I'm the first woman to lead this organization, this 85-year-old organization, right? And, and, and I'm not, I mean, like you said, you're not typically championing, you know, gender rights or, or equity, or, although I hope we embody it in all that we do and say, but I've been thinking, what does it mean to lead as a woman and and be my own full person in this role, mm-hmm. right? To, to think about collaboration and hospitality. And, and it's nothing about what has gone before because I've learned so much from those who've gone before. And I want to embody that too. But I want to I be the fullness of who I am and not try to be something that's been or been expected. So I'm, I'm actually really encouraged by your words, Anne, and this journey that you're on and that you're being formed right now by these things. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Good, I'm, phew, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So, and thank you for being with us. Thank you for our conversation today. You are a gift. Ditto, right back at you. Thank you guys. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.